0: Phineas and Ferb, if you have children, if you have not, that would be weird. Phineas and Ferb is a very clever cartoon, and in it there is a hapless, evil, you could say genius, but he's not really a genius, uh, Heinz Doofenshmirtz. He's got a great Dutch name, a great pretend Dutch name, I guess. And he has a nemesis who's kind of a double agent named Perry the Platypus, It's a reality-based show. And in the New Year's Eve episode that I caught the tail end of as the kids were watching the other day, Doofenshmirtz, who always has a scheme, he always has a plan up his sleeve, and generally the plan involves somehow or another creating misery for others and trying to woo the affections and the allegiances of the entire tri-state area. His ambitions are small. He's not going for world domination. He's going for domination of the tri-state area. (laughs) Well, so he's come up with this concoction, this bow tie, that he aims to unleash on the people of the tri-state area on this New Year's Eve party. And his hope, his deepest aspiration is that this bow tie will make all the people in the audience have a unified New Year's resolution. The New Year's resolution will be this, that Hans or Heinz Dufenshmirtz, Would become their leader and their ruler in 2014. Are you waiting? Are you excited? The hour arrives, the countdown begins, and lo and behold, for once, Perry the platypus, his dependable nemesis, the one who's always trying to thwart his plan, decides to hold back. He doesn't intervene. Doofenshmirtz is absolutely confused. Why? I'm going to make everybody have the New Year's resolution of worshiping me and following me and giving all their loyalty and allegiance to me. And Perry does nothing, this platypus. Kaler called why he did it. Because as the clock struck 12 and he turns on this bow tie, everyone with one voice says, We want to worship you in the new year, Doofenshmirtz. We will follow you only. And he is ecstatic. But he can't understand, why did Perry do nothing? And then three seconds later, they forgot all about it. The people forget all about it. They're back to partying because no one, as Perry knows, and as you know, and as you've experienced, no one keeps their New Year's resolution. (laughs) Platypuses are wise. Wiser than doofenshmirtz. And I would like today, as we start this new series... To give you a New Year's resolution that you may be able to keep. Because I'm not asking you to keep a new discipline or change anything about yourself. I'm going to propose something about presenting your unchanged self to the God who can change you. We're going to talk for the month of January about praying like the Psalms. Not praying the psalms, praying like the psalms, and we've started today with Psalm 62, which is not the beginning if you don't count well, but it's a good starting place for what we're up to today. Dave Hansen is someone I've read a good bit of and has helped me think through a lot of these categories for years, and one of the things that he would say, and we'll start off with this as we look at this psalm, is that in order to... Pray like the Psalms, you've got to first have an acquaintanceship with them. You've got to be acquainted with the Psalms, and that's the first point. When you start to think about it, when you look at the New Testament, you see the Psalms are quoted all over the place. When you are someone who has an interest in learning how to pray, one of the things that you can figure out quite soon, if you'll try it, is that the Psalms have been used by Christians and by the pre-Christian church, the Israelites for generations these are god's words that are aimed at helping us learn how to pray you can think of it this way if some of you have children and most of you at least at some point were a child i'm presuming unless there are any freakish situations there i'm not aware of all of you who have children know this when you have these little terrors they learn to talk somehow don't they They don't come out knowing how to talk. They they come out knowing how to scream. But they learn how to talk. And how is that? Well, of course, here's how it is. You bring them charts. And you say, here, little Johnny, here's how you conjugate the verb to be. Right? I am, you are. And you do that. And you give them vocabulary lessons, correct? You hold up flashcards. This is an apple. Yes, thank you. You say, today, son, we're going to work on the past tense. And then we're going to work on the perfect tense. Is that what you do to teach your children how to talk? Some of you don't even know what the perfect tense is. But yet, without knowing anything about English grammar, without knowing anything about conjugations and verb tenses, somehow or another, all of our children here learn how to talk. How is it? They're talked to. People talk at them. They are swimming in a world of words. You start out baby talking to them. They're just surrounded by people who love them, who are speaking to them. And eventually, they start to try it out themselves. They've heard it enough. They've heard the rhythms and the cadences and how the diction works and how the vocabulary works. And so they they start to try it out themselves. When they first try it out, they're not so good at it, are they? It's cute. It's funny. It's sometimes unintelligible. Sometimes you wish it wouldn't change. But eventually, they start to get the hang of it. Because they've been talked to a lot. And the way Eugene Peterson would say this, and I think it's borne out in my own personal experience, and many of you have discovered this as well, is that the Psalms are a primary kind of speech. They are God speaking to us so that we, after hearing it and getting it in us, can learn how to talk back to him. Because this is what we were made for. You know Augustine's famous dictum at the beginning of the Confessions. He says, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. That's what the psalmist is saying here. My soul finds rest in God alone. He recognizes, as all the psalms do, because they're God's speech given to us to take up in our own mouths so that we can learn to talk back to him. We can learn what we're for. We can learn what to hope for. We can learn what to expect. We can learn how to deal with ourselves with the colossal dismay that we encounter, with the disappointments that come our way, with the tragedy that befalls us, with the delights that come into our lives. But in order to learn this speech, of way of talking back to God, you've got to have some familiarity. So in that respect, it could be a good practice for you. If you really, If you want to learn how to pray, and you get bored with your own prayers, if you pray without the Psalms, if you pray without the Bible, most of you, my guess is, you bore yourself to death with your prayers. They get stale and stagnant. You pray the same thing. God bless. And then just, you put yourself and God to sleep. They can have, no, he doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. That's what the psalmist says. But some of our prayers might make him do that. When, they're not, when our heart's not in it, we're not saying anything. The psalmist teaches us how to say something. So there's a good practice of praying the psalms. If you, don't, if you want to know where to start, start, start today. Read Psalm 1. Then tomorrow, read Psalm 2. Or read a psalm until one strikes fire and catches something and it strikes a chord with you. You learn how to pray as you pray the psalms. This is a prayer book for you to learn how to deal with yourself. But after you do that for a while, and this is what we're going to be talking about mainly in this month of January, you'll learn to pray like the psalms. And when you look at the Psalms, here's what praying like the Psalms is. It's a way of unraveling our inner knots. Imagining yourself to be a big piece of twine that's all linked together, an extension cord that's 100 feet long that somebody didn't put up right, and it's knotty, and it's, it can't be drawn out, and you've got to spend some time with it. And so when you pray like the Psalms, here's what happens. You Let's look at Psalm 62 here. My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. You see, he's starting out. He's not even talking to God. He's making affirmations. He's making declarations. He's reminding himself of things. He's reorienting himself to the reality that he actually finds himself in. Because like George MacDonald said last week, he said it 200 years ago, but I repeated it last week. He says, I wake up in the morning and lo, I forgot. We're perennial amnesiacs when it comes to God. We think the world rests on our shoulders. We're like the little yellow bird that Kathy told me about. Kathy's reading an Anne Lamott book and they tells a the story in there of this little bird who heard that the world, that the, that the sky was falling. They'd been reading Fox, watching Fox News and they heard the sky was falling And so this little bitty canary falls down on her back and puts her feet up in the air. When about this time, this is an illustration where animals can talk, so don't be alarmed. About this time, a large horse comes by. And this large horse looks down at this little bird. It's on its back with its feet up in the air and says, little bird, what on earth are you doing? And she says, well, I heard. I heard that the sky was falling and I wanted to do my part. And he said, do you really think you're going to keep the sky falling with those scrawny little legs? Thank you. That was funny. (laughs) But see, the thing is, what the psalmist and what we have to remember when you're doing praying like the psalms, there's some amount of reorienting. We come in for a minute and we say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Do I really think that my scrawny little legs are holding up the sky? Do I really think that my scrawny little shoulders where I feel like I'm bearing the weight of the world or actually holding the world like I'm some modern-day atlas? Do I actually think that I'm the one who keeps my business going, that secures my future, that makes my children prosperous and wise and righteous? Am I the one who keeps health going? Am I the one? When you pray like the Psalms, sometimes you just make declarations. You remind yourself, wait, 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 wait. I believe that God is the one who restores my soul. I believe that God is able to do immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine. I believe that I belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul. I believe that he's the one who stays up all night while I sleep. I believe that when I wake up in the morning to the promise of new mercies, it's breath that he has planted in me that helps me go. I believe that he's the one who's given me the desire and the ability to create wealth. He's the one. Who makes things go. And apart from him I can do nothing. You make declarations. Sometimes you got to talk yourself into it. So some praying like the Psalms. You're not even praying to God. You're, you're just you're affirming things about God in front of him. It's a way of unraveling you're not. Sometimes you're having imaginary conversations with other people. How long will you assault a man, he says. Would all of you throw him down? This leaning wall, this tiring fence. He's envisioning his critics. This king has people who want to see his downfall. They see his vulnerabilities. They want to knock him over. you feel vulnerable? So did he, and he's talking about them. How long are you going to do this to me? He's having a conversation with someone who's not there, but he's not talking to God yet, but he's doing it all in front of God. They fully intend to topple him from his lofty place. They take delight in lies. And in a sentence, it reveals he's talking about southern people. This is a prophecy. He says, with their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. With their mouths they're syrupy, sweet, and polite, courteous as they can be, but in their hearts they're cursing you in hope that you die a violent death. Just like any good southern gal has been taught to do. What? You have conversations sometimes with people not there. You're unraveling, you're thinking through things. You're affirming things about God. And most of all, you're doing this. He says, my salvation and my honor depend on God. He's my mighty rock, my refuge. So, here's the sequitur of that. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your hearts to him. See, If you're going to have a relationship with God, if you're going to get free of your inner knots, if you're going to be the kind of person that God actually invented you to be, then you're going to have to interact with Him, which means you're going to have to spill your guts to Him, open up your heart to Him. This is the kind of thing that Hannah was said to do when she was infertile. She was barren and she had a a rival... That was in the harem, oh, it was just two wives, I guess no harem. But her husband had two wives and the one who could have children was constantly provoking her. She was constantly asking for children. She wasn't getting what she wanted. So you know the story, she goes up after her husband says that great thing that husbands say, aren't I worth more than you than ten sons? And she slaps him across the face and says, don't be foolish, you idiot. That's not in the text. But you can imagine the backstory that didn't get reported when he tries to console her in her infertility with his great presence. What she does, though, is she goes to God. And she's praying. She's weeping bitterly. She's mouthing with her mouth, but no words are coming out. She's so shaken of soul as she pours herself out to God that the priest says, woman, get home if you're going to be drunk. He thinks she's drunk. But really, she's pouring out her heart. So that should be a sign if you're pouring your heart out right to God, if you're someone who's really entrusting everything you know about him, sometimes you're going to sound drunk. Sometimes you're going to sound impolite, irreverent. You're not going to sound right. I've been reading this prayer journal that Flannery O'Connor kept. Some of you may have had to read a Flannery O'Connor short story when you are in high school or college. But listen to this, because I think this is a great example, a succinct example of pouring out your heart To God. It starts like this Dear God, that's a good start. Dear God, I am so discouraged about my work. Well, see, that's what you do. There's no politeness here, there's no sugarcoating here. You just say it. You say, Trust in him at all times. I'm going to reveal myself to God. I'm discouraged about my work. I don't like my job. I'm not getting done what I think I ought to get done. This doesn't feel as meaningful as I hoped it might. She's addressing her work with God. That's what you do when you bury your heart. I have the feeling of discouragement, that is. I realize I don't know what I realize. Please help me, dear God, to be a good writer and to get something else accepted. She's talking about her work. Well, that's good. The psalmist would do the same thing. It's helpful for us because most of us spend most of our waking hours doing our work. We believe here that all the work you've been given to do is work that you're doing as an agent of God's providence. You're, you're called to it. Whether it's at home or at a bank or at a hospital or at a school or at a business office. Are you frustrated about your work? Do you need things to happen in your work? Are you confused about what to do? Pour out your heart to God. That's so far from what I deserve, of course, that I'm naturally struck with the nerve of it. She's getting into her internal state. Here I am asking you for things, but I don't deserve you to do anything. I'm struck with the nerve of somebody as flaky and unfaithful as me asking you for favors. And then she goes on. Contrition in me is largely imperfect. I don't know if I've ever been sorry for a sin because it hurt you. Do you hear the honesty there? There's just... Taking what's inside, what I know is there, what I'm conscious of, and offering it up to God. That's what J.I. Packer says is what conversion is. Heart-pouring prayer is really just being converted over and over again. Offering as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of God. So if you know yourself to be disappointed, discouraged, if you say, You know what? I read David saying, Against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. And you think, Huh, I don't know if I've ever felt that way about sin. Well you own it, you offer it up to God. See how see oh just get all boils down to grace, I suppose. Asking God again to help us to be sorry for having hurt him. I'm afraid of pain, and I suppose that is what we have to have to get grace. Give me the courage to stand the pain to get the grace. Oh Lord, help me with this life that seems so treacherous. And so disappointing. Do you hear what she's saying? She's just being honest. God, this life seems awfully treacherous to me. It seems awfully disappointing to me. It doesn't seem at all what I thought it was cracked up to be. Something's not right here. And she's offering it up. If you're going to pray like the Psalms, then you're going to have to create this space for a searching kind of honesty. You have to say what's there. You know, some of you have been told, and rightly so, you know, when you whine, you might have had a parent said, would you like some cheese with that wine? Has anybody ever told you that? You've, been, you've heard the Apostle Paul say, do everything without complaining or grumbling. I saw a recent interview with Jeff Bezos, the king of Amazon, and on 60 Minutes, and he said this. Someone asked him, now booksellers are having all types of critique about your business, and they're worried that you're putting them out of business. And he says this poignant thing he says, You know, complaining is not a strategy. Amazon has not happened to booksellers, the future has happened to booksellers. It's a good line. Some of you need to use that for yourselves and on others sometimes. Complaining isn't a strategy. If you go around your life complaining all the time, it's not helpful, it's not useful, it's not right. But the Psalms teach us that there ought to be spaces in your lives for complaint, for griping, for whining, for lamenting, for decrying injustice, for... For letting the inner ache out in verbal form before God. Now some of you are afraid to do that. You're afraid what might happen if I start doing that. Some of you are afraid if you say certain kinds of things that you really feel about God. Have you ever said this? Have you ever said anything out loud and all of a sudden, said, oh gosh, God's gonna get me now? Have you ever said that? Don't lie. But here's the thing when you reveal something, you're not creating a new situation for God. You know the story about the little boy who was at his grandmother's house and she had this duck. She loved this duck. And one day he was playing with a slingshot and, she, and he accidentally hit the duck with the slingshot. Killed the duck. Well, he looked around. Nobody saw. So he buried the duck and thought, well, Grandma will just think something happened to it. He thought he was safe. No one saw him. He knew, but no one else knew. But it turns out that his sister knew his loving, adoring sister. And his sister, well, the first opportunity to come when she was asked to take out the trash, she said, will you take out the trash for me? He said, no. She says, remember the duck. He took out the trash. She had a way to get all her chores done for him because anytime he demurred, she just reminded him, remember the duck. I've got the goods on you, son. She implicitly stated. Well, at some point, he got tired of this. You can only do it for so long. So he decided he'd come clean, and he goes to his grandmother, and he says, Grandmother, I'm so sorry it was an accident, but I killed your duck. And Grandmother threw her arms around him and said, I know, I watched the whole thing happen from the sink. And I've been wondering, because I forgave you right when you did it, I was wondering how long you were going to be able to put up with your sister's blackmail. But you see what happened. Like grandmother watching on. God knows everything you're thinking, feeling, doing. He knows. He knows the secrets of hearts. He looks down. He considers the hearts of all. Everything they do. So what you do when you reveal to him. You're not creating a new situation. You're just entrusting your inner gunk to him. Who can do something about it. It's a searching Kind of honesty. And what you'll find if you make space in your life to sometimes just really have it out with God in utter honesty, you'll find you don't have to complain all the other times. If there's a space to lament before God, there's a space to complain, there's a space to gripe, there's a space to say what's on your heart, what's really there, what you're really disgusted about, frustrated about, scared about. And you don't have to be controlled by it all the time. But you got to open it up because you don't even realize what's in you until you start to release it. You're not conscious of things until you can put words on them. And that's what God helps us do when we pray like the Psalms. We get acquainted with the Psalms so we can know how to pray back to them. And then we have these kinds of open space for searching honesty where we pour out our hearts down. And show him everything that's there. And why on earth would we do this? This is the last point. Why would we do this? Because in the end, praying like this helps us know that we're loved. It creates faith. And it helps us know that we're loved. Hansen says this. He says, I never met anybody who said, now I believe in God. I think I'll start to pray. He says, no, 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 no. It always works the other way. Prayer creates belief. Because you learn something as you offer yourself up to God. You learn that he's there in a way you don't know if you're not doing it. This is a practice that you have to practice to learn. Most things are like that. You can't just theoretically know about heart-searching prayer. You've got to do it. And then you discover that God's listening. He's like a good friend who's listening Draws speech out of you. It's a vacuum that sucks the prayers out of you, God's ear is. That's why these, these blind men, and the other passage that Becky read, they cried out. Because they come to know that this was the king, this was the son of David who could do something about their plight. And so they said, Son of David, have mercy on us. And the crowd said, Shut up! Leave him alone. Don't bother him. And they cried out all the more. And when Jesus heard it, he was like a mother whose, whose ear was perked to her crying baby in the crib. And her compassion was roused and her energy was focused. She has to run to bring relief. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Do you believe that Jesus would say that to you? What do you want me to do for you? Do you trust him enough to open up and unravel your knots in front of him and say, here's what I need you to do for me? Now, he may not do everything you want him to do. If he doesn't, it's because he has a better plan. But what you're going to realize at the end of it is what the psalmist is here. In this psalm, there's only one place where he actually speaks directly to God. It's at the end of the psalm. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong and that you are loving. When you know that you've been heard, you start to believe that you're loved. And brothers Karamazov, this great story, the buffoon father, this is said of him. He liked to know the presence of someone in the room who was strong but would not turn his face away. And what you have in our Savior, who took our penalty on the cross, was someone who let God turn his face away from him. So that as we pray in his name, God's face will never be turned away from us. Someone strong who can do something about everything in your life who will not turn his face away. You, O oh God, are strong and you are loving. What a man, what a woman, what a child craves is unfailing love. What a person who prays like the psalm with searching honesty and heart pouring prayer discovers is that God meets you with a listening, unfailing love. Let's pray.